The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation, the Christmas edition. Jingle bells, squatchy smells, Scotty laid an egg. My name's Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the mighty sniffling Sasquatch. Tammy, that probably has the fucking flu, the plague, Underwood. And if you get me sick again. I didn't get you sick last time you got me sick. No, you got me sick, you twat. No. You get me sick again, I swear to fucking God. I probably have COVID. I swear to God, I will throw you to the lions to the at the lions zoo. At the zoo? I will let them eat you and then crap you out. You know, that would be a whole lot better than what I'm feeling right now. Because I feel like I got trampled by a bus. Well, <laughs> you look that way, too. Oh. Um, and use a little bit better vocal dynamic. I'm trying. I don't feel good. I can tell. I just want to go over, like, sit over here in the corner and moan. <laughs> Shut up. Got to pay extra for that in Thailand, too. Shut up. So I, I want to address something from last night. Last night? <coughs> what happened last night? <coughs> Well, I'm going to tell everybody. Oh, okay. Tell us, Scott. What happened last night? So, last night we had a show. It was a really good show. Um, mm-hmm. Loved the venue and everything. You know, good turnout and everything. I want to tell you all about fueling dreams. And this is why. This is why. I got my very first guitar when I was six years old. And it was in 1979 on Christmas. So, yeah, well, yeah, you got it in 79. But because that's all I yeah. wanted. That's all I wanted. You know, and we were piss-ass poor. What? And my mom had to scrape together a whole $20, 20 bucks, right, to get me my first guitar out of a JCPenney's catalog. Right. Okay. Uh, it's called the Global. It's the worst guitar that's ever made. Worst. You can't adjust the action on it, and it's a three-quarter size guitar. Yep. The last time I saw that guitar... Was I think it was in my 20s, and I think it was when my mom and my stepdad were getting rid of their house that they had in La Mirada, California to move to Las Vegas. Okay. And um, the last time I ever saw that guitar. Okay. And then a picture surfaced of me on the same day, on that Christmas, that I got my guitar. Yep. Holding it upside down and everything. Now, granted, that guitar is old as shit. It's a horrible guitar, but I want to bring to everybody's mind... Because of that guitar, that single guitar sent me on a path that literally made me millions of dollars. Millions. Right, right. And I'm trying to keep my shit together because I almost lost it last night on the I, show. You did. You got, you got choked up last night. Even which I've stage. never seen you get that way I don't get choked before. up very easily. I know. So, a combination of Jennifer Dahl, uh, Brian Engel. Mm-hmm. Tammy over here, and my own bass player, Matt Tom. That's right. He kept a secret from you forever. So we're getting ready to hit the stage. We got like five, ten minutes, and I'm going to go outside and smoke. She said, no, sit, sit right here. Just sit. I'm like, okay, chill the fuck out. God damn, you don't have to bite me or anything. I wanted to. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> and she, between all four of them, they found... The 1978, because that's the last year the guitar was made. Mm-hmm. Global guitar. Yeah. Matt refinished it. Yeah. And that was my Christmas gift. Fucking amazing. 
Yeah. I even brought it home last night, and I was exhausted and sore. I know you were playing it last night. Yeah, I was sore as As shit. I'm laying there going, I could just go to sleep right now. (laughs) Since then, you know, I've I've got guitars that, you know, that that go into several thousand dollars. Right. You know, I've had, I've played guitars that have been in the the $100,000 plus range. Right. Um, because it's, it's what I do for a living. This, this is how I make my money. Right. You know, is, is I, I, I'm one of the very few that, that actually get to do music for a living. Exactly. Um, but it was because of that guitar, because I begged my mom. That's the only thing I wanted for that Christmas was that guitar. Yeah. It was a guitar. It didn't matter which one it was. That set me on a career path that I do not regret. I regret my drug habit. Don't get me wrong. Um, even though, it's, you know, everything's a learning experience. Right. <clears throat> but but then you wouldn't be the person you are today if you didn't have that drug habit. You no, know what and, I mean? And, and that's true. That's how I look at my flaws. Yeah. Um, just, and, 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 and Squatch, you put it the best. You said, what do you get the, the man who has everything? Yes. And can get everything. And can get anything, yeah. Yes. You know, um, what do you get him? And I'm sitting there thinking, there's nothing you can. I, I can get Anything in the world that I want. Right. I know. And then when I said, you get him what he had and lost and wish he had again. And you're like looking at me like, going, I don't know what you're saying. You're like, what the? Look at you like your UFO. Like, what? Yeah. Like uh, two Asian girls? They're 16? <laughs> I mean, 18? I mean, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, absolutely amazing. The, the, the display case is being made. Right now, yeah, and that's gonna get it's it's place of honor in my home because just yeah. a fucking amazing. I just Brian, I can't thank you enough, man. If anybody could find it, I bet you can't find two in the entire world. I was gonna say Brian like pulled through. Granted, it wasn't exactly it, but that's why I had Maddie. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that was missing was uh, it had a white pick guard instead of a black one. Instead of a black one, so yeah. Matt removed the 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 old one and, and cut a new black one, right, and put it on there. And then restrung it for us. Yeah, restrung it. Um, mm-hmm. Just absolutely uh, yeah, amazing. Matt did an amazing job. And it's it's in mint condition. It is. It is like shiny. I mean, it's nice and yeah, shiny and well, the everything. first thing it comes off of cheaper guitars. And uh, well, it's even the finish. So, well, even my more expensive guitars uh, that are acoustics is inside. There's always a label. Right, so right. So it gives the manufacturer's name, where it was manufactured, all that kind of shit. And usually that comes off because, you know, fucking humidity. and Right, like right. Everything on this thing is pristine. Right. I mean, shit, somebody loved that guitar. Well. And now I do. I was going to say, now you can. But, yeah. So, yeah, Brian, you fuck, you're, you're, God damn it, you're amazing, brother. You're fucking amazing. Yeah. Jen, of course, I love you to death, and thank you so much. Squatch, good fucking job. And Maddie. Jesus, I know it had to be hard for you to keep that secret from me because as a band, we share everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we share absolutely fucking everything oh, we're super close. You should have seen our maneuverings, getting it from my vehicle to his and then vice versa when he brought it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, putting it in his thing and covering it with a blanket like it was a dead hooker. and Yeah. Like my son's flashlight? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But yeah, it was some... Really bizarre maneuvering, trying to get that thing all. So, so here's my little tippy poo for for parents out there. Seriously, no matter what instrument your kid wants, even if it's a drum set, yeah, it's going to be annoying, dude. I started off as a shit guitar player, you know, and I, I I got I got that, and I got this book called I think it was called Alfred's First Guitar Book, and it didn't have pictures. It wasn't for kids, but it went note by note, so it taught you how to read music and shit like that. 
You know, but even if it's a drum set, your kid's going to start off sounding like shit. And that, that's where everybody starts. Right. And I think that should be with anything, not just music. Anything your child is passionate about, fuel that passion. Yeah. Totally know? fuel that passion. Don't, like, dash their hopes and dreams. They're, the world's going to, like, tear them down enough. And that's true. It's true. You know, and, and whenever I say I'm going to church, people know I'm not going to, you know, a church. I'm going to fucking Guitar Center. I was going to say, Yeah. You know, or, or another guitar shop. Worship at the altar of the... <laughs> of guitars. <laughs> of the Les Paul. <laughs> um, but my career has led me down a, a, a fantastic path <laughs> full of great memories, really good friends, an amazing client list. Yeah. Um, that, as a child, I never thought that I would be where I am. Right. You know, I, I never thought that I would be entrenched in this industry and, and be, especially when everybody said, you know, most people wash out. Right. You know, most people, they, they you'll be a starving musician. Right. Um, you know, you'll, you'll be lucky to make under minimum wage. Right. And um, I had many people tell me I was going to fail. Yeah. But when you're passionate about something, you stick with it. And I have. I've played guitar. Like I said, my first guitar was uh, Christmas, the day that this episode's getting released. Yeah. Uh, in 1979. And I was holding it up. 44 years ago. Yeah. I've been playing for a minute. Yeah. Um, I've been writing professionally since before I was 18 years old. Wow. Um, you know, and I still write professionally today. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. I just a big shout out to all four of you, the fucking A. Now, do you write sheet music, too? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can... Uh, today you don't find a lot of people who can sight read, which means you can play and read. A, like a, I, you can give me a brand new piece of music and put it in front of me, I can play and read it at the same time. Right. Um, without practicing. Right. Because I'm just to, to me, it's just like reading. Like when, when we're reading uh, our, our research. Right. It's the same thing to me. Right. It's just a different language. Yeah. No, I remember reading music and everything back in the day. See, so yeah, I just had to give that little Christmas shout out. You know, what have not. And thanks to everybody who came out to the venue last night. It was a good show. You guys are all amazing. Yeah. Absolutely fucking amazing show. Um, good time. Good Dude, time. I'm telling you. little on the sore side when I got home. But thankfully, uh, I have painkillers and muscle relaxers. I'm still on the sore side. <laughs> I just ache everywhere. You got the flu. Like yeah. I said, if you, give me, if you get me sick again, though, all bets are off. I will kill you. You promise? You already gave me fucking bronchitis. I did not give you. You can't give somebody bronchitis. It's not contagious, moron. You gave it to me. Just accept it. Bronchitis is not contagious. Just like the freaking pneumonia isn't contagious. You're probably going to give me the pneumonia next. You know what I'm going to give you? A foot in your ass. Well, your foot's way bigger than my ass, so. Well, then, maybe you should keep your mouth shut. Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's get into part three of the mysterious death of Ted Binion. I have not read anything about Ted because I'm more interested in you telling the story. Yeah, well, and like remember, it's been so long, and I'm so like exhausted. But uh, remember, they like she called in and she was like boohooing and sobbing and couldn't even speak coherently. And then when they did the autopsy, there were signs that his body had been moved because they thought it was really weird that he was like laying prone, like he was in a coffin, kind of with his arms out to the side and his feet straight out, and you know what I mean. Right, right, right. And then there was no evidence of, like, regurgitation, which is what happens when somebody ODs. Their body naturally starts to regurgitate that out. Right. I'm, I'm very familiar with ODing. Yeah, I me died too. twice. Yeah. 
So, um, so now we're going to talk about the mode because, and then remember that the whole security system was like shut down or whatever, like going through transition. So, you know, because it was out of commission, including the day the the death, um, it was useless for all intents and purposes. Nobody, I mean, what it should have caught, it didn't catch. Um, meanwhile, the investigator recalled that Sandy Murphy. Binion's girlfriend had been asking questions shortly after Binion died regarding how to file a claim for a one million dollar life insurance policy that she believed had been issued to him through the casino, the horseshoe, you know, casino naming her as the beneficiary. However, the detective found that his policy had listed his nieces and nephews as the beneficiaries. That makes that actually makes sense. I learned yeah. that a long time ago, like because I've got life insurance. And the only person who's ever been my beneficiary since I've had kids has been my kids. Yeah. You know, I just, and that's at least for me. And I'm thinking that Ted was probably the same way. You want to make sure that your yeah, loved Yeah, and he ones, didn't have children, so. He had a daughter. Oh, that's right. He did have a daughter. Never mind. My yeah. bad. You know, um, we want to make sure that they're taken care of because, you know, uh, I, I mostly worry about Jake. <laughs> that's, Dude, we all do. Love my son, but I, I, I worry a lot about him. Yeah. Now, the detective also uh, reflected on how she had called one of Ted's attorneys the morning after his death in which she had expressed concern about possibly not getting the house and how she had also phoned another one of his attorneys that same morning announcing that she was the beneficiary of his $1 million life insurance policy and wanted to know how she could file the claim. You know, when you do it right the day after he's dead, that's highly suspicious, people. Nah. Highly suspicious. Motherfuckers are going to be trying to get money until the second I die. You know what? I'm trying to get it now. I ain't got nothing. No. Murphy, it seemed, was, be- was beginning to seem more like a gold digger than a bereaved partner who had lost her lover and companion. He decided to delve deeper into Rick's background. You know, the, the Sancho? You know, because yeah. I know you finally this last year learned what Sancho meant. From Montana. Yeah. From who? Montana. No, Sancho. Oh, yeah. Her, her Sancho's from Montana. Mm-hmm. I thought you were talking about, yeah. No. Yeah. Her Sancho. Her Sancho Speak, is from Montana. Yeah, speaks Spanish fluently and didn't even know what Sancho meant. I didn't because I actually knew people that their name was like, what's your name? My name's Sancho. Oh, hey, Sancho. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, no, it means secret lover. You like that one? I'm going to make uh, my neighbor girl my Sancho. Shut up. Sancha. She means she's Sancha. A, she's a female. So as he prepared to dig deeper into Rick's background and his activities, the detective refreshed his memory about what he already knew about Rick. His business known as MRT Transport Incorporated, in which his wife, Mary Jo, was listed as the corporation's secretary treasurer. His failed business ventures and need to quickly raise capital, his criminal history in the state of Montana, and how he had come to know Ted. Uh, the detective knew that lust for another man's woman, as well as greed and a desperate need to obtain money, could be deadly combinations. People had been killed for a lot less than that. Um, now, the detective also learned that Rick had formed a Nevada corporation under the name of MRT Transportation of Nevada, incorporated on August 6, 1997. A short time later, he obtained checking accounts for the company at Bank of the West of Nevada, and by December 19, 1997, had obtained a loan of $200,000 on a revolving line of credit that was secured by the assets of all of his businesses, as well as by signed personal guarantees from both him and his wife. The loan's date of maturity was June 19, 1998. 
to like six months. Oh, okay. I was going to say, it's an awful small amount to get for a loan for an active business. Yeah. So, as he delved into these finances, the detective learned that Rick had been unable to meet the loan's maturity date, and it was on the brink of defaulting. However, Rick also was able to convince the bank to extend the loan's maturity date to September 19th, which was two days after Ted died. And the same day that Rick, David Madsen, and Michael Malott were arrested and parump, weird name, after removing parump. the silver. Remember that? Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. that. Silver and parump. Yeah, and parump. Now, it now seemed more obvious that, than ever that, tab- that Rick's financial situation had been dire for some time, but bef- both before and leading up to Ted's death. Now, despite that, Rick had denied stealing stealing uh, Ted's silver in Pahrump less than the two days following his death after essentially being caught red-handed. Not to mention or all the silver-handed. other... silver-handed. I know, right? All the other facets of the case that had been covered so far, the detective was still reluctant to call the death a homicide. It's like it's staring you in the face, people. Yeah, we've seen that before, though. <laughs> we've seen that uh, in, in other cases that we've covered where all the evidence is there. Oh, yeah. And even the perpetrator himself is sitting there going, I did it. I, did it. Yep. I killed this person. Carol Cole. Right yep. it's a, I'm thinking of Carol Cole. Right here. I killed <sighs> these people. And they're all, sir, we need you to step aside. Jeez, Mike, we'll never find this killer. It's a mystery. I'm your killer right here. Sir, we're trying to solve a homicide. Go away. It's a mystery. This guy's a sticky character. Sneaky, right. I say. Sneaky. Yeah. Who could have done this? <laughs> You know, I think it I think it was natural causes because, you know, she was dead wrapped up in a shower curtain in the closet. It was a blanket. Oh, was it a blanket? Yep. I th- that one still floors me with Carol Cole. They find yeah. the body wrapped up in a blanket. In the closet. In the closet. We think this is natural causes. Really? Yeah. I, I, okay. That's because blankets and closets cause death, I guess. Well, I don't fucking know. I mean, know. even if it was natural causes, somebody obviously moved the body. Mm-hmm. So there was some, you know, nefarious actions going on. I'm about ready to pass out. So as the investigation into Ted's death continued to make a little progress towards finding the truth about he, how he died in 1998, however, made the transition into a new year and still no charges had been brought up against anybody. His death was uh, still officially being called undetermined. But by now, Clark County Coroner Ron Flood. Yeah, that's his name. F-L-U-D. Flood. Oh, my God. I'm going to start referring to my penis as the storm and the flood. Watch out. It's dangerous waters. The flood is coming. Oh, my God. You're so weird. That's disgusting. <laughs> um, indicated that his office was in a holding pattern waiting to see where the investigation led and that what evidence might be presented to give him cause to change his death from undetermined to something more specific. Then on March 15th, 1999, nearly six months after Ted died, Clark County Coroner Ron Flood called a rare news conference and announced that he was changing the classification of the manner of his death from undetermined to homicide. According to the coroner and prosecutor David Roger, someone else overdosed Ted and it was not being considered an accident. Although Flood would not comment on specifics as to why he had changed the classification, police sources indicate that it had been changed in part due to the fact that investigators believe that the death scene had been staged and the fact that so many witnesses had provided statements that appeared to implicate Rick 
and Sandy in his death. Well, the thing is, is that the coroner could have even changed it for Months something ago. simple yeah. with, with, with the fact of that Ted smoked heroin. Yeah. That's the key. <laughs> smoked. But internally, they found out he consumed. Yeah, he had ingested it. You know, ingested this massive amount of opiates, including heroin, which he had never done. He's not an opium eater. He smokes it. So you see that, and that's such a huge... Being an addict myself, I know my preferred way of doing coke. Yeah. And mine was doing lines. I'm not eating it or any... You know, I, I injected once, but that was it. But, you know... See, I never, ever injected. Oh, it's wonderful. It's fucking tremendous. Yeah, no, I never wanted to get into that. Um, but um, so you see this huge change in an addict's behavior as far as how they're they're getting their fix. You know, that right there alone, by itself. Yeah. Put away the fact that the body had obviously been moved because we had lividity on the, on the right side. Right, right. And then the rigor in the back right. where it had been turned over. Forget about all that. That point alone is enough to go, dude, one of these things is not like the other. This is fucking suspicious. Yet they're sitting there going, hmm, maybe it was natural causes and he just overdosed. Well, he overdosed. Right. But somebody fucking did this to me, to, to him. They gave him this massive amount that he ingested. Right. Because as a junkie, you know, you know you're dosing. Oh, yeah. You know how much of your drug you can do before you put yourself in that danger zone. Right. Ted knew. Ted had done fucking heroin for, for decades. Years. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. So he knew. He knew his shit. You know? <laughs> but now all of a sudden they're going, well, maybe this is suspicious. You morons. Yeah, right. Now, it was, um, it was, it's why it's generally believed and theorized by those in law enforcement that Ted had been subdued. And intentionally overdosed by force by one or more people near the entrance of the den. And then he was dragged to this location farther into the den where his body was found when paramedics arrived. That theory was based on the fact that investigators found spots of what they believe were gastric fluids that he had purged near the entrance of the den. And the fact that the spots traversed in nearly a straight line to the point where his body was discovered. See, that's another thing yeah. right there. They, they should have looked at that right from the get-go. Go, wait a minute. Well, yeah, because they made a comment that there was no purging right next to his body. Well, you also have Sandy sitting there going, hey, he was in bed and he said, watch me sleep because blah, blah, blah. But now right. you're, you're seeing this line of vomit right, from the entryway all the way to where his body was found. I don't know about you. I don't know everything in this world. However, I, in my heart of hearts, believe if your body's laying down in a spot, which was a mattress... On the floor, what? in their what living room or something Den. like that. Then you're not going to leave a trail of vomit from the entryway right. to where your body's found right. if you're already laying down. Now, I'm pretty good at math and physics and science. I yeah. don't see how that's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying the probability. Slim to none. You have <laughs> you have a better possibility. And I love using Nessie of Nessie knocking on your door, going trick or treat, trick or treat. I need five dollars. Mm-hmm. That's a better I chance. Need, of that. I need bus fare. Yeah, I need some bus fare. You know, call right. me an Uber. You have a better chance of that than leaving that trail. Right. It's fucking stupid, man. Right. Look, if you're going to kill somebody, man, think smart. Think smart. Plan your shit out. 
That's right. That's right. Then the overacting. Oh my god, I'm so distraught. I know, right? <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I know, man. Just reading that transcript one me make one me to <laughs> smack her. Makes me want to cry just at the pain <laughs> of her overacting. It's like, I look, know. this isn't a fucking soap opera. It's not all my children. It's not like a telenovela. They, <laughs> they notoriously overact in telenovelas. I tell you what. You I, love them, don't you? I do. I love Mexican soap operas, and I'll tell you why. It's never the girls that cry. Rarely is it them. It's always the guy, and it's it's the so you hear the music come on, right? Maria, hola, Maria, are you home, Maria? And then Maria's in in bed with like her husband's best friend, and you, oh Maria, Adios, <laughs> and then he's crying, and she's like, you know, just sitting there, like what? I'm Stone faced. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 boning your best friend. I don't know what's going on, and it's always the guys is the you know. I'm sorry, it's all my fault. Blah blah blah. And the girls like, I don't give two fucks. Yeah, none. As opposed to American soap operas, where it's always the woman crying. Well, and American soap operas drag on forever. Like Mexican soap operas are like, you know, seasonal. I love, love oh Mexican soap operas. I love Mexican TV, though. Yeah. Do you? I do. Oh, yay. It's fucking, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's some good programming, man. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a weird cat. Anyway. You are weird. Continue on about but, Mr. Um, Ted Binion. Now, the investigators uh, believe that it's highly possible that Ted was wrapped, that he had purged heavily. As he, by being, when he was wrapped in a sheet or a blanket or something similar, and that the liquids he had likely purged leaked onto the floor as his body was being moved. Similar investigations involving drug overdoses, whether intentional or accidental, have shown that subjects or victims nearly always purge or vomit heavily, which is the body's natural response to rid itself of the damaging chemicals. Now, based on the estimated time of death, it's also noted there had been signif- uh, I'm sorry, sufficient time for rigor to set in prior to the paramedics arriving. However, when they arrived, the only rigor they observed was the area of his jaw. The fact, this fact suggested to the detectives that the rigor mortars had been eradicated from his body or destroyed, which means it had already lapsed through that time. Or, was, or by, by the moving process. Yeah, that's because, what they. Or by the moving. Yeah. Yeah, because when uh, for for those of you that don't know, when embalmers or anything like that have a body that's in full rigor, right? You can break the rigor up by working the joints because rigor's in the joints, right? And that will loosen the body, so it makes it more pliable. Right. I feel like I have rigor mortars right now. You wonder how I found that out? I don't want to know. A, a horror movie, and then oh. I did research on it. It was. Uh, Oh fuck! Uh, Return of the Living Dead, the very first one, and the the they they wind up at a at a graveyard inside of uh, like uh, where where they're doing the uh, the prep for the bodies, right? And that's what the uh, the embalmer had said. And I said, "That nah, can't be true." So I researched. It. Son of a bitch! You can wow. actually get rid of the rigor. You just work the body. Wow! Work the joints. Yeah. Uh, hang on. Now, considering the vast amounts of heroin, Xanax, and Valium found in his stomach at the time of the autopsy, it seemed nearly inconceivable to detectives that there would be no signs of purging on his body. It was widely believed among law enforcement that someone who's with those amounts of drugs in their system would have purged significantly, and the fact that there was none suggested someone had cleaned his body before the paramedics were called. It should also be noted that prior to the classification of the manner of death being changed, 
David Roger provided images of the marks on Ted's body to an outside forensic science lab for further evaluation, and the images examined included his chest and right and left wrists. That independent examination determined that the small, round, red mark on Binion's chest was compatible with the button of his shirt having been compressed with considerable force against his chest. A large and darker uh, partial circle with an approximate diameter of 17 millimeters was noted in relatively close proximity to the small red mark, and the examiner suggested that it could have been caused if the button... Uh, believed to have made the smaller mark had been moved and compressed, uh, possibly through a layer of uh, other fabric. It's also possible that the larger mark had been made by an object larger than the button. In fact, according to the forensic scientist who concluded the analysis, the larger mark in Binya's chest was compatible with the diameter of a muzzle end of a firearm. And it's possible that could... It was a possibility that could not be ruled out, especially since paramedics had not performed a sternum rub in an attempt to revive him. Um, uh, let's see. The linear series of abrasions found on Binion's right wrist, as well as the abrasions on his left wrist, were examined with the possibility that they had been made by the use of handcuffs. However, the non-uniform spacing of the lines on the right wrist was not considered compatible to handcuffs. It could have just been kinky sex. I've used cuffs several times. I know, I know. <laughs> just say it, just say it. The mark suggested that it was more likely a wristwatch band had made them. Similarly, it is not possible to associate the marks on Binion's left wrist with handcuffs, although the forensic scientist wrote that he could not positively exclude that possibility either. The only problem with the theory of the marks on his right wrist being made by a wristwatch was the detectives found upon follow-up he was not known to wear a watch. In fact, James Brown had stated that in all the years that he had known Ted, he had never seen him wearing a watch. I wonder if that's the same James Brown. Although Coroner Ron <laughs> yeah, Flood, he jumps up, I feel good. Right? Uh, would not provide any details as to why he changed the classification of the manner of death. Uh, the question was asked by reporters regarding the considerable, considerable amount of heroin found in his stomach. You tell me, Flood said, how do you inhale heroin smoke and get it in your stomach? Which is true, right? Very carefully. I know, right? <laughs> uh, hang on. Where was I? I forgot where I was. Oh. Uh, finally, on Monday, July 21st, 1999, Prosecutor David Roger was ready to bring to fruition all the courthouse rumors of impending arrests and that had been circulating for over two months. He and the detectives... <laughs> had put together an extensive 109-page affidavit to, in support of arrest warrants for Rick and Sandy. Roger presented the affidavit to Clark County Justice of the Peace, Jennifer Togliatti. Ooh, she sounds like a mafia. No and the arrest sounds kind of hot, signed. though. I know, kind of a little bit. Uh, four days later, on Thursday afternoon, June 24, 1999, um, that's actually the exa exactly a year before my son was born, um, the detectives had asked members of Metro Repeat Offender Program to conduct surveillance at Murphy, uh, at Sandy and Mur uh, Rick's apartment. And they wanted to arrest Sandy and Rick at the same time to enable their cases to be tied together and didn't want to take a chance of, one, uh, Ted being in Montana while Sandy was in Vegas. Finally, at approximately 5 p.m., the officers, the ROP, the Repeat Offender Program officers, observed Sandy and Rick exit the apartment get into their car, and leave together. 
that they were followed to a Smith supermarket and reported their findings to and their findings were reported to the detectives who were on their way home from work. And the ROP officers asked the detectives whether they should make the arrest or wait. Um, but the detectives told them to go ahead and make, you know, take the guys in custody before they lose them. <coughs> Sorry. It was approximately 5.30 that night when the ROP officers entered the grocery store and presented the arrest warrants to Sandy and Rick. The officers read them the rights and took them into custody without incident. They were leaving Sandy and Rick out of the store just as the detectives arrived. By the time they had gotten, they had drove the two suspects into the garage of Clark County Detention Center. The media had already heard of the arrest and were waiting with their cameras ready. Of course they were. I hate the media. They were booked and charged with murder as well as conspiracy, robbery, grand larceny, and burglary. Um, on Monday, March 27, 2000, a long line of people filed through the metal detectors on the first floor of the courthouse at in downtown Vegas to try and claim a seat in the Honorable Judge Joseph T. Bonaventure's courtroom. What a freaking names. That's a hotel is the Bonaventure. <laughs> I know. Now, Court TV had its camera set up in the courtroom, as did a local TV station, so that there could be, the world could experience a courtroom drama that would ultimately play out better than Perry Mason. Over the next two months, the jury heard the sordid details of Sandy's affair with Rick, the details of how Rick was in need of money, how Sandy told others that Ted would soon be dead of a drug overdose, of the robbery of Ted's vault in Pahrump, as uh, some $7 million in silver, and of romantic trysts in posh Beverly, Hotel, Beverly Hills hotels. Although the two defendants had, come, had some of the best attorneys in town, the jurors would not be convinced by the defense attorneys that Rick and Sandy were innocent. On Friday, May 19, 2000, the jury returned to the courtroom and announced that they had rendered a verdict after eight long days of deliberation. Their verdict had come as a shock and surprise to many as a relief and a relief to others. They found Rick and Sandy guilty on all counts. Although Rick hung his head when the verdicts were read, neither he nor Sandy showed any emotion. On Friday, September 15th, the judge sentenced them to life in prison on a variety of charges for which they were convicted. All in all, uh, Sandy would be required to serve a minimum of 22 years in prison, and Rick would have to serve a minimum of 26 years in prison before becoming eligible for parole. That is sexist right there. Why is he getting even more? Plus, if you Well, throw- he did steal the silver. Well, she wasn't there. It doesn't matter. And plus, she's a hot chick. That is a waste of perfectly good vagina. Well, we we ran into it with remember Sharon Kine? Oh, How yeah. the jury like did not find her guilty, and they even asked for her autograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you what, man. Sex does sell, man. I I'm wish that you and you. I were sexy because yeah. we would sell the shit out of this show, dude. I know we have a voice. We have a voice, a face made for radio. That no, that that's fucking true. I mean, I. I look old as shit, fucking cantankerous. I feel old as shit. Maybe we need to market this show with some hot people. I'm telling you. Big jugs, nice ass, little uh, J-Lo going uh-huh. on. The Jenny from the block. Now, on October 6th, Court TV reported that Rick and Sandy, having already lost one bid for a new trial, were planning another appeal against their conviction and were still seeking a new trial. This followed the sentencing of their four co-defendants for their part in the crime. David Matson and Michael Mallott, who were accused of helping uh, Rick dig up the uh, silver, um, pled no contest to conspiracy to commit glaring lawsuit, uh, which is a misdemeanor. 
Now, Stephen Watkins and John B. Joseph pled no contest to conspiracy to commit extortion. You know what? John B. Joseph? I do. I be Scott. You be Scott? And I be Scott. And Scott, yeah, kind of you be. <laughs> Weirdo. Carry on. Also a misdemeanor, none of the four defendants sentenced faced charges related to Binion's murder, but were each sentenced to serve 200 years of community service or pay fines of $2,000. Did you just say 200 years? 200 hours. I might have said years. I'm oh, sorry. You said years. Of mo- Whoa. I meant hours. Okay. I told you because, I'm tired. Because like, when, when I was on probation... I know, right? I had to do community service, and I can't remember how many hours it was. But 200 years? You'd still be doing it. Jesus Christ. I meant hours. I'm sorry, people. Like, I was getting ready to send, that, send them a sympathy card right now going, dude, that's fucked up 200 In fucking years. In my defense, years. I can barely keep my eyes open. Yeah, we got two more episodes to record. I know. That's good times. I think good I'm going to go take a nap and then come back in an hour. Um... Almost two months later, on December 13th, Court TV again reported that Ted's family was in court in an attempt to win control of his fortune. Following a submission made on behalf of his daughter, Bonnie, District Judge Michael Cherry, yes, I said that. And somebody popped his cherry. Granted summary judgment against Sandy and Rick, Rick in a wrongful death suit. The bench ruling by Cherry to grant summary judgment holds Sandy and Rick liable for Ted's death and the suit was later stayed until the November Supreme Court ruled on their appeals. The decision by Terry affirms the murder convictions. In addition, Murphy is barred from collecting any part of his fortune, despite a dictate in his will that the fact that she was filed a $2 million palimony suit. Um, on October 12, 2001, Court TV reported that Joseph, that Judge Bonaventure had refused to release Sandy on bail pending her appeal. Why would they do that? She's on, in jail on murder. Yeah, yeah. You would like, think. You would think. <laughs> like, why even try that? Seriously, you're I in. Know. You're in jail for a murder charge. Nobody's gonna say. You know what? What's the worst that can happen? Take some bail. Take some time. Go live your life. That's stupid. Fleet of Mexico, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> the decision followed a hearing during which uh, Sandy's lawyer Herb Sachs had accused the prosecution and Ted's wealthy estate of setting up his client on murder charges. There was not one witness who wasn't paid by the district attorney or the Binion estate, he said. Leading the prosecution, David Roger told the judge that Sandy was a flight risk, a danger to the community, and didn't deserve to be free on uh, free uh, waiting her appeal. On July 14, 2003, in what Court TV described as a bombshell, the Nevada Supreme Court ordered a new trial for Sandy and Rick ruling that errors by a judge prejudiced jurors against the defendants. The four-justice majority said Judge Bonaventure erred in two key areas. In his decision not to hold a separate trial for Rick on charges he he assaulted and blackmailed another businessman, and his instructions to jurors concerning testimony about a conversation between Ted and his estate lawyer the night before he died. The majority... The majority... Justices said prosecutors never persuasively linked the July 1998 attack on Leo Casey, a partner with Tabish, in a $10 million sandpit project with uh, Ted's death two months later. But the graphic testimony concerning the extortion and torture had a substantial and injurious effect on the guilty murder verdicts of both defendants. The justices also took issue with the way the testimony of attorney James Brown, oh, he was an attorney, was presented to jurors. The justices said Bonaventure should have instructed jurors to consider statements only as evidence of Ted's state of mind, not as fact. The prejudicial impact was great. 
The statement strongly implied Murphy killed, uh, Sandy killed uh, Ted, and the justice the justices wrote. Now, John Momont, Murphy's former trial attorney, told reporters, it's a score. The over and under on this was fantastic. It's great. He also said that his client was thrilled with the success of her appeal and eager to be released on bail. Back to truck up. Were they literally betting on this trial? I think they were. I got the over and under. I know. I was like reading that. I'm go. did they really bet on this trial? They're all standing around. Man, I'll give you four to one odds on this one. I here, know. Here, here's your spread on this. I was going to say, a lot of people wouldn't pick up that over under thing, but yeah. It's like they're at work fucking like, you know, <laughs> doing the football poll. Hey, man. Like, I don't know anything about football. It's like the Lakers are playing the Seahawks or the whoever does the fucking puck thing. Like the Winterhawks, so I don't know. The well, Lakers would not play the Seahawks or the Winterhawks. While they're they golfing. They play the ba- Blazers, yes. While, while they're golfing. Yeah. And surfing. <laughs> with Arnold Palmer. With, with an Arnold Palmer and uh, Michael Jackson. I don't, I don't know anything about sports. I know you don't. It, <laughs> it just sickens me. <laughs> it sickens me tremendously. Yeah, um, that's, that's fucking awesome, but it's Vegas. It's yeah, Vegas, man. Pretty much, yeah. Like, seriously, in Vegas, in Vegas, there are say, books will, on everything. I was gonna say, won't they bet on anything in Vegas? Literally, fucking anything. There yeah. are books on everything. Yeah, because I remember during the royal wedding, uh, the uh, the Kate and Harry, not Kate, Kate and William wedding. Yeah, there were some bets in Vegas. I'm like, why are you betting on a marriage? Like, honestly. Everybody, everybody wants to know. That they want the over and the under, and they want to fucking bet on it. It's fucking. It's, it's Vegas. It's about I'm gambling. I'm telling you. Now, tell. Uh, where was I? Uh, oh, uh, Rick was not eligible for bail because he must still serve at least eighteen months for the Casey assault. Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz. Who argued Sandy's appeal before the high court said he was preparing a very different defense for the retrial and has scientific experts lined up to discredit the prosecution's case. We'd like to be back in court within 60 days. We're ready, he said. Um, Clark County District Attorney David Roger reported, told reporters that his office was scrutinizing the decision and weighing whether to ask for a rehearing. They're going to see if there's any glimmer of hope, but my gut is that there is not, he said. Roger said he would oppose bail for Sandy. According to the report, the bill for Sandy's appeals was allegedly been paid by a wealthy Irish businessman who lived in Vegas, but it was unclear whether he would continue to cover her fees. There is also some speculation regarding Alan Dershowitz's involvement. I will be involved, that's all I can say, he said. The prosecution team will also change for the new trial. Prosecutor David Wall, who is now a judge, uh, will not take part. And David Roger was said to have his administrative duties will prevent him from trying the case. So two new prosecutors, uh, Robert Daskus and Christopher Lally, will try that case. The role of the judge Bonaventure is also unclear, but the court TV reported reports suggested that defense lawyers may ask the judge to excuse himself. Um, in October 2004, Sandy and Rick appeared once again in court on charges of allegedly murdering Ted Binion. That trial began with uh, opening statements made by state attorney Christopher Lolly, who led the prosecution team. Lolly charged the couple with forcing Binion to drink a poisonous cocktail mix containing 12 packages of heroin, 90 Xanax pills, then suffocating him in an effort to plunder plunder his estate. Jeez, I thought that was going to wind up in a partridge in a pear tree. And loot millions of dollars worth of silver. Um, 
Conversely, defense attorneys for Sandy and uh, Rick emphasized during their opening arguments that the evidence pointing to murder was circumstantial at best. Um, over the weeks, the prosecution called on witnesses who offered supporting testimony about the unusual manner in which Ted died, Sandy's relationship with him, and her affair with Rick. Then, furthermore, the court heard about Rick's money problems and he and Sandy's alleged plot to murder Ted, and the prosecution introduced witnesses that conducted business with Rick, including a risk manager for a truck and equipment leasing company who told the jury that he defaulted on several leases one month before Ted was dead. Uh, One of the more interesting pieces of testimony came from a friend and former employee of Rick named Kurt Grotzer. During the original trial, Grotzer told the court that Rick tried to pay him off to kill Ted, but during the 2004 trial, he changed his story and said that he and Rick only joked about killing Ted. However, Grotzer's friend Terry Sweeney in Montana Corrections offered Tim Bolius testimonies contradicted that story. According to Sweeney, Grotzer bragged that Rick wanted him to take care of a guy in Vegas whose girlfriend was he was sleeping with. Um, uh, let's see here. Where do we go? The, de- um, the defense team also briefly interrupted an attack on the prosecutor's medical experts just long enough to hear testimony from Rick. Um, in Sweetingham's November 15th court TV article, he stated that he received permission from Nye County Sheriff to excavate the silver vault he had built for Ted that summer and that Ted trusted him to dig up the fortune and protect it for his daughter if anything should happen to him. Not long following Rick's testimony, jurors got a chance to hear from Ramon Owens, a.k.a. Ishma. While on the stand, Owens testified that he indeed attempted to pay people off to provide false testimony for Rick, whom he befriended while he was incarcerated in Clark County Detention Center five years previously. Um, his testimony supported Frazier's story, which in fact, in turn, weakened the defense case. However, it didn't weaken as much as the prosecution had hoped. Several days later, the defense and prosecution made their closing arguments. The jury deliberated for approximately 19 hours this time before returning with their verdict. To, sh- to the shock of many, Sandy and Rick were acquitted of all murder charges, citing a lack of medical evidence. However, even though they escaped murder charges, they were found guilty of conspiracy to commit burglary, burglary, grand larceny for plotting to steal Ted's money. After the verdict was handed down, Sandy cried for joy and Rick smiled with relief that the murder charges were dropped. Ted's family sat in disbelief, likely trying to determine what went wrong with the prosecutor's case. In November, on in a November 23rd article, Swinningham suggested that according to the jury, the prosecution was not able to show beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant suffocated Ted. They believed that he actually died from accidentally overdosing on drugs. Their verdict was a far cry from the handed down in 2000, which found them guilty of murder. That's it. That's it? That's it. Shit, okay. I'm over here like doing my thing. Yeah, well, they were acquitted of murder. But, you know, and I got to thinking about this. Yeah, we, we know at all points that that he was murdered, right? Right. Can you prove that they are the ones who right. did it? They're, they're doing some shady shit. Right. And everything says, yeah, probably, but can you actually prove that they right. did it? <laughs> and that's exactly. I think that's where the key is right there. Right. I think you're right. I think that, you know, and that's that is the burden of the prosecution that some people don't understand. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That there is no doubt in the jury's mind that this, what they're accusing the defendant of, actually happened. 
So. Right. And that, that that's kind of what I was thinking of right there. Yeah, is unlike that, a civil suit, which is, you know, like, I think it's a 70-30. Something like that. Yeah. You know, it's just, well, even if it's 50-50 or 49-51, it comes down to what the judge says. Right. Because you don't have a jury during a civil suit. Well, you can. I almost sat on a civil jury. Oh, well, fuck, okay. But, yeah, it's it's... You're talking murder and all that shit, so you have that preponderance of evidence that says, hey, man, can you prove that, okay, he was murdered, but can you prove that these two did it? Right. They're doing some, like I said, some shady, shady, shady stuff. Right. But I don't think that there's a preponderance of evidence that says that they're the ones who actually did it because, you know, Ted had other shit going on. Right, it right. It could have been his ex-wife. I mean, maybe she was well, just maybe. sick of it. She's sitting there going, look, I'm just sick and tired. Of I'm pissed because he's still chasing tail out there. And, and From the cheetah. <laughs> he's over at the, the cheetah, cheetah club. He's over there being a Chester cheetah or a cheetah-ing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it could have been her. We don't know. Yeah. And they don't know. Yeah, that's true. Just my meager thoughts on it. Opinion? Yeah, my humble, humble, humble opinion. You ready to wrap this one up? I've been ready. Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Go on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation and interact with us. We always have a good time there. And I promise I will not, not, I will not post pictures of me naked anymore. Because that guy already threatened to do it. <laughs> that was my favorite when I had Dude, that scammer. I you. Little story for those of you that didn't catch that episode. We had a scammer who got into our. We have a group chat going well, on. Well, he started by texting you alone. Right, right. I get this text out of nowhere, going, "If you don't pay me X amount of dollars, I'm going to release your naked pictures to everybody." And here's me and my. Go for it. But I have naked pictures of you. Yeah. So does everybody else. But everybody, blah, 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 and I'm going to, I'm going to ruin your your professional career. My, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. So then he finds out about Brutal Nation. Gets on there and gets onto the group chat, yeah, for the the whole page and goes hello attention everybody. Yep, and it was yeah. great. And I'll tell you what, our fans did not let me Dude. down. He's, I'm going to release the all of Scott's naked pictures. And everybody's all everybody everybody hasn't already seen Scott naked. <laughs> um, we're Look, we're confused. Like we do, we're, do you want us to include ours? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, we'll include ours. It's 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 all. It was freaking phenomenal. It was hilarious. It's like, dude, I know. And Brian goes, "Does he not know you?" Yeah, exactly. Does he not know you, man. Yeah. Like, because I'm I'm not exactly what you would call shy. No, not at all. <laughs> That's good times. But you can have good times. Interact with us. All right. Remember, folks, this show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, except for Metal Cross Radio, by the way. They're lying. Thieving bastards. And we will see you guys later on. Bye-bye. And y'all, have yourselves a very, very good Christmas. Hug and kiss your family because you never know how long you're going to have them around. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye.